the dragon slaying budget, secure work better pay laws, Sunak is Britain's billionaire PM, and good news about battery tech. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison and joining me from the Sunshine State is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, Walkley Award nominee, <laughs> my wife and your friend, Van Badham. How are you, Van? Well, I have I have a confession to make, Ben. Yes. I've been up here in Brisbane at the Something Digital Conference and I had an amazing time and I'd like to do a shout-out to my friend Yasmin, who I met this morning and bonded with instantly. But they gave us this really amazing macadamia brittle in our little conference show bags. And right. um, it might it might be stuck to my teeth. So anybody can hear weird noises. Nothing untoward is going on, but I do recommend the macadamia brittle, a great export product from the people of Queensland. There you go. Free plug for the Sunshine State. <laughs> Speaking of great things from the Sunshine State, Van... This has been a huge week for one, Dr. Jim Chalmers, Treasurer of Australia. Dr. Jim. Uh, and of course, uh, from Queensland, being from Queensland. So from Queensland. He's Absolutely very Queensland. from Queensland. They all know he's from Queensland up here, let me tell you. And look, they have every right to be proud of him. Uh, you know, the first time in a decade we've had a Labor federal budget delivered. And I have to say, it was a really good one. And, and I'm calling it the dragon slaying budget, not just because I watched the finale of House of the Dragon uh, last night. After I just I want everyone Bloody. to know that Ben was in his special place last night by which he got to nerd out on the budget and then watch House of the Dragon. So oh, he's, as happy, he's as happy as he gets, really. It's true. It's true. But, I mean, the reference isn't to that, to that show, but it's rather to a line from... Uh, Dr. Jim's uh, press club speech, the traditional post-budget treasurer's press club speech, where he said that the dragon we need to slay is inflation. And really when you think about the uh, budget, I think it's important to remember that that is one of the, what I'd call the three key themes of this first Labor budget putting downward pressure on inflation. Now, Ben, I want to bring up the fact that all of the Anglosphere, Western countries are all having inflation problems at the moment. There are inflation problems in the United States, in New Zealand, in Britain. But when it comes to counter-inflationary economic measures, I notice that in Australia our currency hasn't collapsed and people haven't been driven to suicide because they can no longer afford their mortgages, even though... We had a budget release last night. Indeed, and in fact, our currency ticked up slightly uh, this morning after the uh, after the budget, and which is a sign, you know, you can say, well, you know, it wasn't that big a tick up, but certainly it wasn't a collapse, which is what happened in the mini budget of uh, now former Prime Minister Liz Truss. You know, the role of uh, the national budget is to be countercyclical. You know, we've talked about this before on the show. We talked about this, it seems like such a long time ago now. But This is some start- hot Keynesian stuff going on, Benny, I've got to say. Yeah. Oh. Well, it is. You know, at the start of the pandemic, we were talking about 
why the Morrison government needed to borrow money and use it wisely. The using it wisely bit is absolutely important as well. Unfortunately, Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg uh, basically started their own uh, pork barrel company uh, instead of running the budget properly. You know, when, when the only people you're getting advice from are either from the gas industry or Jerry Harvey, then <laughs> you're not going to be running a proper counter-cyclical Keynesian uh, economy. Yeah, the diversity of expert minds are not really in the room. There's only so many shades of blue tie before you've completely exhausted the spectrum. <laughs> and the reality of it is that Morrison did waste billions of dollars, right? So coming out of the pandemic, land war in Europe, all these inflationary pressures, most of the inflationary pressures are about supply side, you know? Normally, we're accustomed to the demand side, demand side being, you know, uh, there's wages are too high, uh, people are spending huge amounts of money, uh, you know, People are borrowing and, and investing and making so lots. So that's what we would describe as demand-side economics. Yeah, that's demand-side inflation, right, where the economy is- I mean inflation, sorry, demand-side. Yeah, where the economy is, you know, running hot, as they say. So in inverted commas, when the economy is running too hot and inflation takes off because people's expectations are there'll be higher wage demands and higher prices and you end up in that kind of spiral. And it's sometimes called a wage spiral. And you'll hear- over the few, next few days, weeks, months, probably. And let me guess, Tories in the business lobby going absolutely bonkers, going, we're going to be in a wage spiral. There's a wage price spiral because working people insist on being paid fairly for their work. It's it's contraindicative of capitalism. Exactly. And they've already been doing it, right? <laughs> Even though everybody knows, and in fact, Tony Burke, the Minister for Industrial Relations, said today in Parliament that wages today are at the same levels they were at 10 years ago. So wages are not the cause of inflation. Cause of inflation at the moment is supply side. That is, you can't get enough wheat out of Ukraine. You can't get enough semiconductors out of China. Uh, the demand for gas and oil is through the roof. That's why we're seeing record profits. But also- They're also, also restricting supply of oil. I mean- they are, they are. The OPEC cartel has restricted global supply of oil. I but also, you there, Benny, the OPEC cartel. That's what they are. They're a cartel. They're I'm absolutely sure. a cartel. Uh, and and but also there has been additional excess profit taking. That is, prices have gone up to take extra profit out of the economy. So when that's the challenge you face with a federal budget. You you can't go, okay, well, we're gonna lift the tax-free threshold and or we're gonna splash a hundred billion dollars into the economy, because that will create more demand and stress on the supply side. So if you have already restricted supply side, your government's role is to then manage the demand side. And effectively, that's what government can do. It can kind of manage the demand side. It can put up taxes, which will reduce demand, or it can lower, you know, it can put in place additional spending, which will increase demand. The basic economics. What last night was about was putting downward pressure on inflation, keeping election promises, and having some targeted cost of living relief. Because you don't want your cost of living relief 
to counteract your downward pressure on inflation. And, you know, everyone from Stephen Kukulis, uh through to John, John uh, Hewson have said this was a very good budget. It walked a very fine line and walked it very well, you know, because there are lots of things in it that meet those three key themes. And, and then I want to go through some of them, right? Because I, I just wish the listeners could see your face because you've got this like delighted glow that you get to talk about your favorite stuff. Well, apart, still, from, apart from dragons, look, it, because it's a really it's a really nuanced one too, right? Like we all love a budget that goes there's a hundred billion in infrastructure and everybody's going to get a thousand dollar check and we're going to cut taxes. Oh, and we're cracking down on multinationals. So they're doing that last one, by the way. But they have reduced waste, which was absolutely vital. $22 billion of waste from the Morrison era, everything from a dam that no statutory authority was prepared to say was a good idea that was going to cost nearly $6 billion to $900 million in pipelines and wall raisings and things that had no business case. No business case, no environmental recommendation were costly and effectively pumped money into private providers. Am I right? Absolutely right. Wow, what a coincidence. I wonder if any of those private providers made donations to the Liberal or National Party. Be interesting to know. Wouldn't it? $800 million has been saved uh, from, amongst other things, the commuter car park scheme. And look, you know, as somebody- Popularly known as the car pork scheme. Yeah, and absolutely right to call it that. I had somebody on Twitter message me going, oh, you know, but, you know, it's all well and good to have childcare, but families, you know, need somebody working and that person needs to be able to park their car and get on a train and go to work. What are you going to do, leave your kid in it? Well, look, look, let me be really clear. Absolutely. People absolutely need to be able to park their car and get on their commuter train and go to work. That's important. Some of the car parks that Josh Frydenberg and Scott Morrison and Angus Taylor and Peter Dutton had signed off on. The lads. Were for train stations that no longer exist. (laughs) So on all four car parks where there is a need for car parks, but building car parks in the hope that someday someone will, A, lay some train track and, B, build a train station (laughs) seems either ridiculously optimistic or a total waste of money. Yeah, I just want to put this in context that typically the Tories who funded these car parks, funding car parks for train stations that don't exist, Tories don't open new train stations. Typically they close them. Indeed. So I'm, there's, a, there's, a, there's an infrastructure logic feedback loop that's kind of going on with that one. It's a really you were very one. restrained in your response to the person who contacted you. Well, you know, look, uh, look, sir, I appreciate your point. It's a fair point, but until there's a train line and a station, let's hold off, or at least one planned, let's hold <laughs> off on allocating funds for a car park. So, look, there was there were good savings there. There was all sorts of extra savings from not outsourcing half of the public service anymore. I mean, that's good. That's good for workers. That's that's a good wage boost for workers too in the long run. Um, but also things like saving money on um, the Governor-General's leadership program and also 
the the, the thing that I'm 16 finding million, was it sixteen or eighteen million dollars for a 16. leadership program that hadn't been described but had been funded. Yeah, from an organisation that only existed as a website and one guy uh, with an email list. This is fantastic. Good work. Well done. Developing uh, the leaders of tomorrow. <laughs> that's right. One, one website and at a time. One MailChimp blast at a time. Um, the thing that I really, the thing that really blew my mind when I was looking at the savings was the $1.6 billion for announcements that were funded but were not actually legal yet. So these are, these are programs that would have required other laws to be passed or changed in order to actually come into effect beyond just allocating the money. So Morrison and Co, and I think Morrison and Co is probably the right term at this point. Um, or Morrison Co, given the fact he was minister for everything, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Morrison, 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 Co. Morrison, 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 Morrison. yeah. Um, anyway, so $1.6 billion, So these included things like making uh, new Australian citizens wait four years before they were eligible to receive any form of social security. That's bad. Bringing in voter ID laws. That's really bad. Uh, changing the uh, residency eligibility for pensioners. Also bad. And, of course, that classic Tory favourite, drug testing welfare recipients. So incredibly bad. That's four incredibly bad things, all of which I think I have written about and criticised in my Guardian columns over the past 10 years. None of which would have been legal. So there's yeah, a none of which would have been legal, and all of which would have infuriated a significant percentage of the population. So there, there was a saving. So there were savings. Those savings help with that downward pressure on inflation, right? That's money the government's not going to spend. It's not going to go back into the economy. Eat less pork. Eat less and pork. The other saving. The other. The other no, I'm not going to. The other saving, of course was that there was a big windfall from our resources. Uh, so additional receipts, more money in, and 99% of that extra money that was coming in went back into the budget. So that a lot of people thought Labor was going to spend that. There was a lot of speculation, you know, that Labor would bring forward some of its programs around childcare perhaps or um, do new things. But Jim Chalmers said, no, we'll put that back into the budget. Again, downward pressure on inflation. But keeping election promises is absolutely vital too, right? And they did that last night. Cheaper childcare. So the gentleman who messaged me was clearly across the childcare was going to be a big part of the budget announcement, and it well was. Well done, sir. Well done. Doing the pre-reading. <laughs> Indeed he had. Because fees for childcare reduced by 90% for households on less than $530,000 a year i got to say, that seems like almost every household. I don't think I could name, I don't know, I don't know if I could name any households with uh, with more than that. But so that's good. The Reinhardts, the Foot Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, there, there, are, there are those public figurey type people, but you yeah. Know. Um, cheaper medicines, pharmaceutical benefits scheme uh, goes from $42.50 down to $30 uh, a script. That's 3.6 million people who will be making savings on every prescription uh, in that in that scheme. That's worth something like nearly $200 million a year. Now, I'm not going to go through all these things, but these are things that were promised in the election that they would do, and they've delivered them or they're delivering them. Fundamentally important 
absolutely builds trust. The other thing was more affordable housing. This is both a targeted cost of living measure, but also keeping election promise. So yes, funding 60,000 new homes through shared equity, through building uh, social housing and affordable housing through various means, not through uh, the old first home buyer grants because those kind of schemes- Are inflationary. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much, Van. Um, I listen to you. Indeed you do. Uh, But the big announcement that came out last night that was new was the housing accord. And this is a huge deal. We have a fundamental undersupply of housing, right? One of the inflationary pressures that we have is the cost of housing is high because we have not enough of it. Over the next, over the five years between 2024 and 2029, the government in conjunction and in partnership with state, local, super funds, construction industry, construction unions, it's going to deliver a million new homes. Now, already today we've seen super funds, other governments come out and support this, industry come out and support this. It's a huge step, huge step in dealing with that supply side pressure on housing. And of course, the added awesome outcome being more affordable housing for more people living in Australia. Can I have a little rant? Sure. So that's what the show's about. I know, I know, right? But I, I, I just want to indulge this one, and just going to framework by saying that I get very frustrated around uh, analyses of poverty and what it means to be poor that only uh, express themselves in terms of capital as opposed to infrastructure. And what I mean is there are voices in social policy discussions, particularly online, that I don't think I'd necessarily credit as lived or expert in terms of their experience, who seem to think that poverty is just alleviated by cash injections that we should just parcel out cash to people. And I I have a pretty powerful critique as a person who, as you know, has lived in some pretty mm. marginal circumstances, economic circumstances, as have you at various points in our lives, which is why we hold the political beliefs that we do. I've got to say um, a cash payment to an individual does not guarantee secure housing. What guarantees secure housing is a housing policy and building the physical infrastructure of housing. Just as a cash injection to an individual is not enough to build an early childhood education sector, like you actually require collective structural investment in shared material resources. And as a person who's been in marginal circumstances, like at at some point cash doesn't matter. What matters is the security of living environment and uh, and access to quality public health care and access to educational services and all of the physical supports that individuals cannot buy. And I get very, very angry with people who seem to think that a progressive welfare policy is just more money. It's like, no, actually, the welfare state in the West is based on five pillars, uh, the dole, pensions, a built environment like public housing and public transport, 
um, the uh, so uh, education and healthcare. They are the five pillars of the welfare state, and that's how we give people uh, the security of cradle to grave support. And I should say, Van, you know what you're saying is why I found Andrew Probin's analysis last night so galling straight after the budget. Because what this budget does is it has targeted cost of living relief. Cheaper childcare is a, is a huge cost of living relief for millions of Australian households. Cheaper medicine, nearly 4 million Australians will benefit from that. More affordable housing, tens of thousands of households created, provided housing and provided housing support. Those are real and tangible cost of living measures that will benefit people who most need that support. And also I should mention that it was announced before the budget that there was $33 billion more going into social security payments in this budget. And 11 billion of that was going to job seekers and 11 billion of that was going to pensioners. Now people will say, oh, well, you know, the, does inflation and yes, but again, that's why we have to keep downward pressure on inflation. And not just, and this has always been my criticism of the universal basic income idea that is popular in some trendy circles, um, not but not with, you know, left-wing economists because universal basic income is just about flushing private markets with public money. And like I said, no government is ever going to pay you enough money to build your own childcare centre. And if you're like, oh, well, then a group of people who all need childcare should get together and maybe devote a proportion of their income to building childcare, and then you have just described taxation and that's like what we have. So let's actually channel taxation into infrastructure that we will access at various points in our lives or we'll trade off a, a service that I need, like public transport. I can't drive, which is very embarrassing and it's a long story, but I rely on public transport and I use it more than most people. But I don't use childcare centres because I have no children. And that's sort of how the taxation deal works. But just this idea of we'll just individualise everybody and relief from poverty is just about individual cash like obviously people need pensions and obviously people need the doll and obviously people need you know the various other forms of pensions in order to be able to buy food and make consumer decisions but the infrastructure actually is what ensures quality of life you can have 50 bucks or cancer treatment is not like i think it's pretty obvious which one you would take if you had cancer and let's be let's be really clear. That's that's essentially the kind of Americanized model, right? And where does that end up? It actually ends up with cash being replaced by food stamps. You know that 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 what you're describing is an erosion of the social security system and the uh, the diminishment of the social wage, which is so important. And this budget goes a long way to re-establishing elements of the social wage that have been eroded over the last decade. Cheaper childcare, cheaper medicine, more affordable housing, fundamental. Getting wages moving. You know, that we talked about the outsourcing thing, um, the minimum wage submission. The government has made a commitment to supporting the outcome of the aged care wage submission that's before the Fair Work Commission. 
that has the potential to lift wages significantly. Six months of paid parental leave. This is both keeping an election promise, improving cost of living, and putting downward pressure on inflation because it facilitate in terms of inflation, it facilitates more people participating in the labor market. It means that households who have newborn children have additional income for an extended period of time. And it was a promise that was made. These are so fundamental. And, you know, everybody from Stephen Kukoulos to John Hewson has John Hewson, that notorious communist John Hewson. Have talked about how this budget walks that very fine line. Now, there's been a lot of talk uh, about you know, the fastest growing expenses and how we, you know, obviously you want to put down pressure on inflation. Inflation hit 7.3% today, by the way. So it is absolutely a dragon that needs to be slayed because getting wages moving again while inflation is that high means you've got to get wages up above inflation. So even, you know, Tony Burke said uh, today in Parliament, wages in real terms are at the same level they were 10 years ago. So to get real wage growth, that it's not just the headline wage growth number, it's also that inflation number. So we've got to bring that down. But all this talk today around, oh, watch expenses are growing so fast, and all the, rest the NDIS has come in for some criticism, um, some of it possibly fair. You know, the, 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 we've seen rorts, we've seen waste, we've seen ticket clippers, you know, we've seen the explosion in in Uber style gig platforms that just are, act, you know, they they say they're acting as intermediaries. They're not employing the people. They're not providing the services. They're just connecting people and taking ten percent of the money to do it. And when you start to talk about the NDIS hitting fifty billion dollars a year, ten percent of the NDIS at fifty billion a year is five billion dollars. So you can. And of course, no one Uber-style platform is taking that themselves, but you start to get a sense of the scale of the issue. Um, so, of course, the government has said they're going to look at that. They're going to look at how those systems work. They're going to uh, investigate fraud from a provider perspective, which I think is absolutely fundamental. Absolutely we fundamental. We saw that 60 Minutes piece where there was organised crime. Bill Shorten's doing amazing work making sure that Australians living with disability are front and centre of this process and not kind of, you know, reading about it uh, for the first time in the newspaper. But I want to just say too, some of the media commentary on this hasn't been great. Just It, it just hasn't been great. The way they've talked about the NDIS as though it's some kind of charity um, handout, every dollar returns $2.25 when it's being run efficiently. We've had a decade of Morrison mismanagement that has cost taxpayers money. Billions. Potentially. But when it is run properly, the research shows very clearly it is an investment in the people of Australia and our economic capacity. And that needs to remain front and centre of this discussion. Not that, oh, you know, it's some out-of-control welfare charity scheme. That's not what it is. It's an economic investment in the people of Australia. And let's be clear, it's not even the fastest-growing expense, fam. 
What's the fastest growing expense, Benny? It's the interest on our debt. I should say Morrison, Morrison and Morrison's debt. (laughs) Because that's the biggest, that's the fastest growing expense. And partly because of inflation, right? So Again, that why do we want to put downward pressure on? These are all reasons to put downward pressure on inflation, you know. And it's and it's hard because it's not it's working it's not working people's fault that we have this inflation. It's not uh, it's not the Labor government's fault we have this inflation. It's a series of bad decisions over a long period of time by conservatives here and overseas, including people like Vladimir Putin, of course, starting a war, that have created these problems. So. It's. I think it's a really good budget. It. It doesn't. It's one of those budgets where there's going to be very few people who are delighted. Right. Um, yes, there is some additional investment in TAFE and training. Again, building capacity, increasing supply of skilled workers, giving people more opportunity to have higher wages. But you know, a lot of people are going to go. Oh well, you know, really would have liked a check or some kind of fuel rebate or you know, of course, you know. But it's a solid budget and it sets the scene. You know, there's going to be another three budgets at least before the next election. And a lot of work is going to have to go into what the policy settings are that continue to meet those three themes keeping election promises, having targeted cost of living relief, putting downward pressure on inflation. You would expect to see at some point improving and growing the economic productivity of Australia or growing the economic, growing the pie. I hate those kind of phrases, but they're the sorts of things that will get thrown out. You can't around. grow pies, you bake pies. Pies do not grow. Yeah, you plant a pie, don't go very far. Yeah, no, don't plant pies. Then you've wasted a pie. You can't eat that pie, man. But one of the fundamental things that is going to be so important to getting wages growing again is changing the bargaining system. And it was really, it's been really interesting, I think, week on that front too, Van, you know, because we've seen the budget, we want to get wages moving again, but the budget numbers show us that's not going to happen with the current settings. Inflation is going to outstrip wage growth. So something's got to change. Yeah, and it's the dynamics of the workplace which unnaturally suppress wages in this country through some of the strictest anti-union legislation in the world. It is an an unnatural imposition on what should be the dynamics of wage negotiation within the economy. Absolutely. And uh, Tony Burke, who's the Minister for Industrial Relations and the Arts, just a fantastic combination, um, has spoken against in Parliament uh, about the secure work better pay laws, which are being introduced tomorrow morning. Now, look, and again, in in true Labor fashion, uh, in keeping with the theme set by the budget, this is going to be a law or a set of laws where some people are going to be very unhappy, some people are going to be a little bit unhappy, some people are going to be a little bit happy, and very few people will be delighted. Um, and that's that's pretty much how you get good workplace relations laws because they're designed to set a balance between the workers and the bosses. They're designed to facilitate bargaining. Let's say that word again. Bargaining. bargaining. <laughs> yes, bargaining is a negotiation where offers 
and refusals and compromises are made until a consensus is reached on a mutually acceptable compromise. And I want to say at this point, and I should have said it earlier too, Van, that a lot of the policies that Labor has announced in the budget around childcare, paid parental leave, these are all positive step forward based on policies created and advocated for by unions, right? So when we start to talk about secure work, better pay laws uh, and bargaining and unions, you know, yes, unions absolutely play a role in the workplace and in bargaining, but also in that broader macroeconomic sense as well, unions have been vital to improving the living conditions of Australians. And so, you know, no better time to join your union than right now. It is a good time to join your union. In fact, Ben, I think it's always a good time to join your union and there is truly a union for everyone. There is. You don't even need to know what union you should join. You can just go to australianunions.org.au slash wow because bosses have unions, don't they, Ben? They sure do. They sure do. I like to call them uh, big business lobby groups. (laughs) They don't like that. They don't like being called unions. They don't like being called uh, big uh, lobby groups, they much rather uh, just... Professional you know, associations? I think that's what they like, yeah. Mm. Collectivise or die, I believe, is the moral of this story. That's right, Van. So the bosses are collectivising and, in fact, the bosses are collectivising to the point where they're threatening to run a campaign against the laws that the Labor government is going to introduce tomorrow. They don't like them. They think they're going to increase wages, right? Uh, Angus Taylor has said he thinks they'll increase wages and that's why they're bad. Now, the the big business lobby groups haven't gone so far as to say we think they're bad because they'll lift wages. They just think they're bad because, oh, it'll lead to more strikes. Even again, though- so Angus Taylor is the shadow treasurer now. Yeah, yeah, he is. Angus- yeah. Which is hilarious. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? And he has said this will raise wages and that's bad. The person who positions themselves as the alternative for running the entire economy thinks that you're a wage-earning worker, it would be bad for you to earn more money. I just want everybody to let that sink in. Absolutely. It is a phenomenal Fantastic. Well done. Great move, Angus. I mean, look, to be fair, I've seen him uh, on television a few times now and I don't think he even knows what he's saying half the time. Like I, 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 I don't he's know. He's shocked he, that anyone's listening after that press conference that he did when no one turned up. Yeah, I don't know if he's having like pre-programming issues, or <laughs> you know, like there's an error in the script or what. But anyway, he he was asked why he was opposed to multi-employer bargaining, and he said uh, because it will increase wages, uh, and that's not a path you want to go down. Uh, that's not something uh, that governments should be trying to do. Totally the opposite of what uh, the election was about, which was increasing wages. So, look, the the laws that they're going to bring in tomorrow, what we know is in them, and we don't know everything that's in them, of course, because they haven't been introduced yet, but we know they're going to get rid of pay secrecy clauses. This, There are varying views on this. I mean, I get the the position that, Pay secrecy is is bad, and I, and I think it's particularly bad uh, in uh, workplaces where 
there are actually men and women, as we've discussed before, Van, we're very gender segregated in our workforce, but where there are men and women, I think pay secrecy clauses are sometimes used to create um, pay hierarchies that are quite gender-based and that's not acceptable. Uh, and of course, if there's a secrecy clause, you can't talk about your pay with people. So it's also used to de-unionize and demobilize people. Uh, surprise, surprise, the bosses like pay secrecy clauses. They think that, you know, people shouldn't have to be forced to disclose their pay packets. It's like nobody's saying they're forced to. They're just saying you shouldn't force them to not do it. Uh, and, of course, multi-employer bargaining. This is the big one. This is the one where the big business lobby groups want to campaign against the government. They're going to have to get their skates on because the laws are being introduced into parliament tomorrow and, by all accounts, you know, there are good, solid support numbers for them to get passed before the end of the year. But multi-employer bargaining, which will essentially allow some of the lowest paid people in this country to finally band together and negotiate pay with the people who actually set the pay. So you know what I mean by that, right? Yeah, I do. I absolutely do. That this is, we're it's talking about. It's not a test, by the way, everybody. It's not actually a test. No. Even though Ben is no. looking at me like it is a test. And what multi employer bargaining is, Ben? God. Yeah, but it's, I mean, fundamentally, there are, they're suggesting there might be two streams, right? And the, and the first one is supported multi employer bargaining. Uh, and this would be open to unions, employers, and workers in low paid sectors or sectors funded by the government. And this comes back to that NDIS issue, right? If you're going to have, uh, you want to, if you want to reshape the NDIS, you want to reshape it in a way where it's actually delivering safe, quality uh, services from trained, properly remunerated uh, workers. Not, oh, we're just going to cut people's support packages, right? So to do that, you've got to have a stream like this that actually allows people to bargain and negotiate. It's not just NDIS, it's aged care, it's childcare. Um, think about supported accommodation services. Uh, think about family and domestic violence services, community legal centres. There's a whole range of things in our economy that are funded by government where there is no capacity at a small um organizational level to really bargain because the funding is set by government, right? So fundamentally, those people should be able to band together across their organizations and bargain across multiple employers. And let's and remember when we talk about bargaining, like which is really the theme of this episode, bargain. You know, sometimes unionized workers uh, don't go for a pay rise. They go for shorter hours or various uh, allowances or the provision of certain materials or longer breaks or it's a bargain. There are negotiations that can get made around conditions as well as wages. Absolutely. And that's fundamental, right? Like bargaining in this country has been dying. Like it has been on life support. It has been happening to some degree in some parts of the public sector uh, and in some large employers who have very little competition uh, or 
because for the vast majority of the economy, if you don't bargain, then you pay people the award and you're effectively paying them the minimum. And if you can do that, then you have a competitive advantage over anybody who's who has bargained with their employees. And that's what's been happening over a long period of time now. So employers that do recognise the right of workers to collectivise can expose themselves to um, a market competition that uh, unscrupulous employers who treat workers like dirt don't, uh, you know, can undercut them. Absolutely. And traditionally, the liberal uh, response to this concept has been, oh, well, the best workers will go and work for the employers that do the right thing. And look, there's a certain logic to that, right? Like you can follow why someone would logically think that's what's going to happen. But what we know, what we've seen in practice- Because they went to university and read a lot of neoliberal garbage. But what has happened is that employers are dragged down into that mud. You know, it might be one or two in a sector that start and go, look, we're gonna, we're just gonna do this because it's easier than innovating. It's easier than having a better product. It's easier than having better processes. We're, we're, you know, just gonna pay people the minimum. But eventually what happens is more and more players in a sector, more and more employers in a sector go on that slippery slope and they end up down in that mud. And in a funded pro, in a funded uh, program, in a program where the funding is set by somebody else. There's very little discretion, right? So it makes no sense. It makes no sense that the childcare centre in our country town has to, the two or three employees who work there have to try and bargain with the volunteer committee of parents who turn over every two years. You know, they're going to, what, sign an agreement for three years on behalf, you know, they're not even going to be there by the time that agreement is over, right? So it makes no sense for them to do that. They have very little control over any of the circumstances that set the conditions for those workers because of the way funding is structured and because of the way those organisations work. So there's a whole, there are two really important factors here about that we're trying to fix with multi-employer bargaining. And the second stream is, is this single interest multi-employer bargaining. So that's where a group of employers would say, actually, you know, and, and this happens now. Tony Burke has said that he's had groups of employers come to him and going, look, you know, we we operate childcare centers, you know, and we think that it's in our collective interest and the interest of our employers and the interest of our community to have one agreement that covers all of us so that we can minimize the cost of having negotiations. We don't have to all have a HR team and, a, and an industrial relations lawyer and have rounds of bargaining that go on for months and months. We can actually collectivize our resources and have a better outcome. That sounds perfectly reasonable to me. Not so much. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm in. I'm very pro this reasonable and equitable outcome for people. Big business lobby, not so much, Van. Not not so keen? Not, no, no, because they're lazy. I mean, this is the thing. It's always so funny to go, oh, you know, it's all going to be a disaster if if these if these laws passed and we have multi-employer bargaining. I mean, we've talked about it before. Other countries have multi-employer bargaining. What are those countries, Ben? 
So they're the Scandinavian countries. Oh, what a surprise. What do you mean the richest, Germany. most equitable countries on earth? Oh, Germany with one of the greatest welfare states. So and uh, I seem to recall, I know this is crazy, that particularly the Scandinavian countries are quite small. They have quite small populations and yet they have some very large influential corporations, Ben. They do. You know, one of the things that I find I know funny. that Maersk and um, it, and uh, Electrolux and, uh, like, there's a whole number of, of brands that are like Volvo, Ikea, like daily household brands that come from Scandinavian countries that have not been crippled into inoperability by the strong labour standards of those countries. We should say when it comes to Maersk, the the – they play by the rules that are set in the country they operate. And the reason I say that is because Maersk are currently in the process of trying to cut the pay of their employees here in Australia through their subsidiary Switzerland. That's opportunistic and not very Danish Maersk. Right, by 47%. They want that's to, outrageous. They want to, and, and it's because that's the rules. They're the rules. Like if the rules say you can cut your wage bill by 47%, it's very hard for a manager to go to their board who represent the interests of the shareholders. Legally, they're the only interests that those people represent are the interests of the shareholders. It's very hard for that manager to go to them and say, look, I know we could reduce our wage bill by 47% and get the same level of productivity and you know, be even more profitable. But we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to pay people money that we don't have to pay them, which they have no power to make us pay them because they have no bargaining power. Uh, so we're just going to give them the money. But, the, I mean, this is this is such a great example because they do operate in the – like this is a hugely profitable multinational company yeah. that is entirely capable of adjusting their operations, practices, and business model to local conditions. And like, they do – all the time. Oh, man, it is enraging. It is so enraging. And, okay, all right, so that's Scandinavian countries, small countries, and people, oh, well, you know, it's different in small countries. Germany, massive country, absolutely huge, but it's got like three times the population of Australia or something. Possibly even more. And, 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 and similarly. Let's be clear, it makes things, right? Well, you know Germany makes things. They make luxury cars, not just luxury cars, Cars at every price point. <laughs> you know, they make things in Germany. They have manufacturing in Germany. And and you go, oh, and this is the other th- this is the other nonsense that gets thrown around. Oh, multi-employer bargaining will cost jobs and it will make jobs go overseas. No, no. Poor management, poor management drives thing jobs overseas. Management that is unable to deal with the local conditions in a way that is productive and seeks out exploitative practices or places to do exploitative practices, that drives jobs overseas. German companies have multi-employer bargaining. They sit down with their workforce. In fact, in some, uh, you know, this will blow the minds of the big business lobby groups. There are even German companies where workers have guaranteed positions on the board. (laughs) Oh, Ben, what kind of fantasy land are you describing? I'm just saying, 
You know, it's also well, you're funny just saying you... that worker participation in, in industrial processes tends to, as part of a, a complex deliberative process, deliver uh, efficiency and profitability outcomes. Oh yes, that has been proven quite consistently. Indeed, it has. And it's also funny that the same big business lobby groups that are opposed to multi-employer bargaining also oppose the award system, and they oppose minimum wages. And I find it funny because in some in some parts of Scandinavia where they have multi-employer bargaining and they have the kind of things that are being suggested to be introduced here with multi-employer bargaining, with uh, arbitration and conciliation and, and having a proper industrial umpire bring the parties together to work through their issues. And look, the unions have said too, hang on a minute, you're going to make us sit down and do this conciliation stuff before we're allowed to take industrial action. That's another hoop we've got to go through. So not everybody's happy. Not everybody gets what they want. But in places where this happens, you know what's really funny? Some of those countries, they don't have a minimum wage because you can't pay people unless you have a collective bargain that people are signed up to, that people have participated in the creation of that reflects the sector, the industry, the economy, the living standards of the people that are participating in it. So I always find it funny, the big business lobby group, oh, the minimum, we hate the minimum wage. Oh, we hate the awards system. Oh, we hate multi-employer bargaining. It's like, actually, what you're really saying is you hate having to pay people and you really wish it was socially acceptable to bring back slavery, but that ship and all of the chains that were on it is gone. It's sunk to the bottom of the ocean and it ain't coming back. So, look, I, I just think multi-employer bargaining is going to be introduced tomorrow. There will be a lot of noise. You know, I, so feel look- free to promote and share this episode to people who get nervous about it because this is what corporations do. This is what the business lobby groups do. They start flooding communities with targeted propaganda that says, if this happens, you'll lose your job because we won't be able to afford to pay wages. And this is always used to divide working people to scare them. Oh, I can't afford to lose my job. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen for all of the reasons why we have just described. Business people do not want to go out of business, right? Otherwise, they cease to be businesses, and given the way that they structure their lives, they also fundamentally cease to be people. Absolutely. So, yeah, do share this. Do talk to your co-workers. Do join your union as well because it's absolutely going to be important uh, that people are actively involved in, in, the, in the campaigns, the counter-campaigns, you know. Wages don't go up by themselves. They need they help did- from you. And in order to be helped by you, they need a legislative environment that allows you to help yourself through a union. Amazing. We did a little jazz dance and it was very <laughs> cute. Uh, amazing. So there'll be more for us to say on this, I'm sure, in the weeks ahead. But then I want to turn very briefly before we get into the good news to formerly Great Britain. Uh, Not so the- Great Britain. <laughs> And their third prime minister in three months. Yeah, yep. So Boris Johnson, uh, at the height of the lockdowns, they were absolutely destroying British families because they were trying to contain an outbreak that was under control, uh, was going was having parties and lied about it. This was exposed. It's still being investigated, had to resign. 
there was a Tory leadership competition between Liz Truss, pork markets, and who promoted very heavily her interest in pork markets in Beijing, which is, should have told us everything, and Rishi Sunak. And Rishi Sunak had been the Chancellor, which is their equivalent of the Treasurer, and he had resigned and stabbed Boris in the back and helped provoke the Boris spill, you know, saying that his behaviour was unconscionable because he also protected. Boris Johnson also knew that somebody had um, sexual assault allegations and promoted them. So that was pretty bad. So there was a leadership contest and Sunak lost. It was close, but Liz Truss won and, of course, announced her mini-budget and crashed the UK economy and uh, has created all this terror that we have discussed and has now been obliged to resign. So Rich Shortest-serving PM in British history. And when you think about how long British history goes for and how long they've had prime ministers, that is quite the achievement. Yeah, well done, Liz. Well done. Uh, obviously, famously, a lettuce uh, that was featured in the Daily Star lasted long, longer than the trust leadership. But uh, the particular detail is the leadership competition between Sunak and Liz Truss actually went for longer than the Truss Prime Ministership. So uh, now we're in a situation where Rishi Sunak, the former Chancellor, who stabbed the deplorable but very popular Boris Johnson um, and brought down his leadership, who ran against Liz Truss and lost, lost against the person who went on to crash the economy, is now going to be the Prime Minister of Britain. You can imagine how well this is all sailing with people. He is the Prime Minister of Britain. Oh, yeah, sorry, he is the Prime Minister of Britain. Because? It, it's it, it's a revolving door. You know, it could have been Boris and Liz or, you know, somebody called Charlie uh, over the past 10 minutes, the way that it's going. It is positively Australian levels of leadership change in the UK. I, 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 just, I just wish someone would think about poor Charles. Like, you know, he thought this was going to be the cushy gig. You know, he's been hanging out to be king for 50 years, finally gets the gig. And every second week there's a new prime minister to be sworn in and names learned. I mean, the guy's got enough problems with his sausage fingers without him getting having them squeezed by new people every week. Ben, don't be fingerist. So somebody made a joke on Twitter the other day that their son had seen an extraordinary period of British history that survived two monarchs, three prime ministers and four chancellors, and they were four months old. And, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's where we are. Rishi Shunak uh, is one of the richest people in the, in a parliament that's full of rich people. Uh, his household, because he's married to the heiress of an Indian IT company, they are worth seven hundred and thirty million pounds, which is the equivalent of like one point three billion Australian dollars. Um, and that's after the crash that Liz Truss caused. And that's caused after the pounds. crash that Liz Truss caused. Uh, to put this in perspective, the average household income in Britain, household income is £31,400 a year. So I, d- I did a little bit of maths, as I am wont to do. And for the average, for the median, sorry, the median household, so the most common household yep. income, uh, the me- for the median household in Britain to be as wealthy as their new prime minister would take that household. 23,000 years to achieve, just to put that in perspective. He was edu- he was educated at the incredibly posh Winchester College, which is one of those rah-rah, rugby-rugby kind of schools, and uh, he went to Oxford. He worked for Goldman Sachs. Like, he's an absolute Tory. Famously, he was interviewed for a documentary when he was 21 
and he bragged about the fact he had no working class friends. Which wow. tells you all you need to know. He's proposing an austerity budget that will hurt the very households that he refuses to be friends with. And it's not really going to fly given his personal wealth of 730 million shared dollars with his partner, who, by the way, was quite controversial. While he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, she was not domiciled in the UK for tax reasons. She didn't pay local tax, she used tax tax provisions to offshore her taxation obligations. That's the kind of person we're dealing with. It's quite an amazing situation. Chris Chris Gambian's written a piece in The Guardian um, talking about the fact that um, Prime Minister Sunak is uh, is a really good example of why uh, pol- politics in Australia needs to stop thinking about ethnic communities as a homogenous group at, or as an interest group, uh, and understand that it's you know individuals make up groups and there are multitudes within it. Uh, Latika Burke, who is a uh, correspondent, I think, based in the UK, tweeted that the Tories have provided Britain with the first Jewish PM, three women PMs, and now the first PM of Asian descent who is a practicing Hindu. And that's all true. And there's no, I don't have no issue with that. But they've also installed three PMs in three months, had four failed Brexit deals. Have inflation is ten percent in Britain? Uh, yeah, they ran a completely ridiculous referendum based on lies that claimed that Brexit was going to result in increased infrastructure spending, notably to the NHS. It was a complete lie that didn't happen, and it withdrew Britain when the referendum was successful from its most powerful export market, leaving the country in absolute chaos and tatters. Two hundred thousand well Tories. Well done. 200,000 British people died from COVID so far. Record numbers are using food banks. And they've even had to create, I mean, this is the innovation of Toryism, isn't it, really? They've had to create heat banks where poor people can gather together for warmth in the coming winter as Prime Minister Sunak decides to cut the uh, support for their energy bills. They literally tried to seize school meals for poor children. Like. Phenomenal. Britain break the workhouse, you know, like it's absolutely shocking. And this is the thing, you know, I think it's absolutely great that Britain has a British-born Asian prime minister. That's fantastic. And that says a lot about, you know, campaigns for representation and diversity. Fantastic. But he brags about the fact he has no working class friends. Where you and I come from, our, our political beliefs about having an understanding of how society works based on, to, to, to quote a bit of a hero of mine, the productive relations into which people are born or enter involuntarily, which because they are relations, create an infrastructural cultural environment that teaches values and encourages rituals and behaviour. We know this as class Working class people have a different cultural experience because of their different productive capacities and economic and social opportunities to middle class or ruling class people. And in the capitalist system are systemically, structurally exploited for their labour in order for capitalists who employ them to extract greater and greater profit from the work that they do. And 
If you want society to be more equal and more fair for everybody and your society happens to be a capitalist economy, understanding how working people are exploited within the capitalist system is called a class analysis and an analysis is directed towards the limitation of opportunities for like advancement, quality, community building, quality of life, you know, cost of living capacity. The analysis is done around how class functions to restrict access and opportunity and make things unfair. All right? And Rishi Shunak brags about not being friends with working class people. And comrades, that's a pretty bad sign. Yeah, it's a hugely bad sign, uh, a hugely bad sign. Uh, look, it, it'd be interesting to see what happens next. The, the British system, as people may be aware, has fixed terms. I think there's another 18 months plus uh, before they're due to go to a general election unless they pass a law to, to do otherwise. Pass a law or if the Prime Minister cannot survive a confidence vote. Right. So, you know, Sunak would be... Uh, you know, just, I don't know, you'd have to be huffing paint to call a general election. At this point, the Tories would be decimated. Uh, he seems quite keen to settle in. But frankly, it seems like it's going to be a very cold and dark winter for the British people, Van. 23,000 years. <laughs> Look, Sunak probably won't be Prime Minister that long. <laughs> But it's also unlikely that your average working class Brit is going to live long enough to see that either. Look, Van, Can you've I just got say, to it, you know, I lived there for 10 years. I voted there. Mm, it breaks mm, my heart. Mm. It breaks my heart to see a Britain that when I lived there, you know, was creating opportunities and amazing standards of education and cultural investment, all these things happen. And now there are heat banks. Yeah, heat banks. Yep. Well, Prime Minister Sunak. I'm sure is investing in heating coils uh, through his offshore shelf company. Uh, that's a joke. I'm not being defamatory. I don't know whether he's got offshore shelf companies anymore or not. Uh, good news, Van. We have to end on some good news because, look, we had a good budget. We're going to have good uh, industrial relations reforms. But environmentally, you've got some good news about battery technology. Yep, and it's happening in Pennsylvania, Penn State University, uh, has come up with a, they've identified the Goldilocks zone in terms of uh, looking at um, uh, heating batteries, like heating electric vehicle batteries to mm -hmm. make them charge really quickly. So it's taken trial and trial and error. They've done it. They can get a full battery charge in 10 minutes now. Fantastic. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. So well done to everybody at Penn State. That's just incredible. That is incredible. And look, that almost brings us to the end of our show. I want to just give a huge uh, shout out and congratulations to all of our supporters who've jumped on our Buy Me A Coffee page. That's buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. Your support has meant that we have continued to reach over 40,000 downloads a month, uh, just huge numbers. We did the uh, Melbourne Fringe uh, Week on Wednesday Live. Uh, we're in discussions to do something for the Victorian state election as well, like we did with the federal election. So keep your 
eyes and ears open for that one. That might even have a video component. And it's really the support of our cadre, our extend the reach, our buck a week and our, and even just people giving one-off support. We appreciate not everyone can do that. So people who share, who talk about, who comment, leave reviews, it all helps build the buzz and keep the podcast going. We really wouldn't be able to do it without you. And Van, are you going to give a shout out to our cadre supporters? Our cadre are Karina Bali, Jane C. Campbell, Leona Given, Someone, Shane Horsfall, Gabe Kramer in the USA. Hey, Gabe. Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona Evergreen Bees, Geotic, Jed Carney, Kristen Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hanai Honda, who I met the other day. Hello, Hanai. Uh, where am I? Where am I? Where am I? And a Honda, Sam Period, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn, Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, at Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, Leanne Shingles, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3, McCabe, Curran, Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren Ashen, Banjo, Matthew Hadley, Naronga Man, John Sharp and Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins and Louise Watson, Red, White and Blue Lou. And our Extend the Reach supporters are Stuart Munn, Marky Mark at Vicky Bit, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Carriedale 68, Frank Nihuis, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lupino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Harry, Arthur, Pauline Bate, Helen, Tradragon, Damien Marley, Daniel at Crazy Keza, John DeHaan at Ange Fennel, Anna Uren at Ross Kenner 888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Denning, Jodie A. Not on Twitter, Karen Penelope, Judge Jane Holloway, Spirit, Spirit of Anger and Hope, Vicky Hanna at Knot, Love Your Work, Didums, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, hello Lola, Richard Graver, someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannah, Moira Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck, Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan at Galvez, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Elian and Andrew Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, Other Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart at Not Sandy B and Renee McGee. You are wonderful people. And, of course, we email our supporters uh, links to The Week on Wednesday, some additional links uh, to interesting stories that we think complement what we've been talking about. Uh, and we did send The Week on Wednesday live only to our supporters, uh, although, of course, you can download it wherever you download your uh, podcasts from. A uh, huge shout out and just a quick uh, hello to our good friend Francis Leach, who is running the On the Job podcast, the official podcast of the Australian Trade Union Movement. Uh, he's doing that by himself now, anchoring that show, getting it done. Well done, Francis. We love Check you, Francis. If you want to know more about your workplace rights, uh, Francis Leach on the Job and the Australian Union's page is the place to go. Now, Van, I will see you in just a couple of days. We'll have to make some videos for our supporters uh, and we might even do the weekend wrap together. Ooh, yeah, Sunday. let's do it. We'll do it. All right. I'm in. I'm up well, for it. I'm on. Can't wait. Absolutely can't wait. I don't know if any of you guys have noticed, but I absolutely love talking about macroeconomics with this man. I'm into it. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until Sunday, love you, Vanny. Bye. Bye.